We start off today with the update on what road checks in this province could look like. Within this new order, effective immediately, road checks can be set up on highway corridors that connect different regional zones of the order. But you will not see road checks in downtown Vancouver or along Boundary Road. Once stopped at a road check, drivers may be asked to provide the driver's name, address, and driver's license. And any available documentation regarding the driver's name and address, for example, secondary identification that confirms driver's residential address if you've recently moved, and the purpose of driver's travel. Documentation regarding travel will not be required. And passengers in the vehicle are also not required to provide this information. If police have reasonable grounds to believe you are about to leave your regional zone or are already traveling outside of your health authority for non-essential purposes, they can direct you to stay within your region or to leave the authority at that time. That was Mike Farnworth speaking earlier today. Let's bring in Peter Millibar, BC Liberal House Leader. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Always good to be on. Uh, What are your thoughts, uh, your uh, reaction to this uh, clarification on what road checks and trying to curb travel is going to look like? Well, it's good to finally have a bit of uh, clarification. We've been asking for 11 days since uh, the Premier first announced this was going to happen uh, for some of these answers. Um, You know, in the middle of a pandemic, one would hope after 14 months there was contingency plans already in place uh, when the Premier made uh, his announcement two weeks ago and that, that uh, this information would have been well thought out. We've been talking about potential travel bans for a while, but the, the concerning point that we've had is for people that are, are uh, legally allowed to be traveling, especially for medical appointments, especially heading down to, to the more specialized medical care they need in the Vancouver area, uh, be it children's hospital or be it for your own specialist, that you sometimes wait months at a time for, and the apprehension people have uh, if they pull up and it's their word uh, versus a police officer who has now been put in that untenable position that the police agencies have been expressing concern around. Uh, that officer is now the sole arbiter of whether or not the person is telling the truth or not and whether they get to proceed to go have their medical treatment or not. Uh, do you think that's going to be a problem, though, as far as uh, I would imagine officers don't want to be stopping people and don't want to be uh, be doing that if somebody says... I have to go to to this hospital or I'm going for this treatment. Do you think that that would be the officer at that point that would would question that? Well, one would hope not. And certainly, uh, you know, we have a very high level of professional uh, police uh, agencies in in British Columbia, especially the RCMP. Um, But the problem is people aren't supposed to have to um, be talking about their own personal health situation in detail uh, to somebody randomly at the side of the road as an authority figure. Um, then you couple that with the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Alberta is at, what, an 11% positivity rate right now as we get closer to the May long weekend. As more pressure mounts, uh, those trailers will be flooding across the Alberta border. The, the, the province has no intention of trying to restrict that at all. It leaves 95% of the landmass of British Columbia still open for people to holiday from from Alberta. And so there are major gaps, uh, both on on how people can, with a bit of comfort, still travel for things that they are legally and legitimately allowed to travel for. Uh, Obviously, we don't want to encourage people to travel far afield uh, 
for non-necessary essential travel. But this is about both medical situations, work situations, and then what will happen on our eastern border as well over the next three weeks. Let's remember, this we're already two weeks into this five-week window of time. Again, where was the contingency planning over the last 14 months for if there was a spike and we might need to take extra restrictive measures? Would you prefer to see then, when we talk about people coming in from Alberta, uh, to do what some other provinces have done, and you can't stop people from coming in, but uh, forcing them to also do, say, a 14-day quarantine? Well, my understanding, and and the Premier had alluded to this, and and I stand to be corrected, but my understanding is that you cannot restrict the same essential type of travel between provincial borders, but you can have those discussions around non-essential travel. Uh, try to talk to people. It's well and good to say that uh, campgrounds aren't uh, going to be accepting uh, reservations. There's nothing in law that says that they can't do that. Uh, in, in the interior, in the Kootenays, in the north, there is a vast uh, number of campsites that are basically unregulated. You just pull in and, and uh, use them. They're, they're well known to people at camp all the time. Uh, they still access the towns for supplies and things of that nature. So it's a real balancing act. Uh, that communities are faced with in terms of trying to stay economically viable while also protecting themselves. And that's where they look to the provincial government to provide those those uh, health protections in place. And, and uh, you know, if it's a simple case that the province does not have the police resources to properly uh, try to have some sort of, of uh, checks going on as well uh, to minimize at least that travel across the provincial border. They should just be up front with that. But uh, instead, we're hearing about just basically one big road check at Hope um, to, to, uh, to deal with this uh, two weeks into a five-week window of time. Uh, the uh, National Police Federation did release a statement uh, earlier today following uh, the announcement from Minister Mike Farnworth saying we are pleased to see that this order addresses many of our concerns and is significantly reduced from the minister's initial enforcement centered proposal and is focused on information and encouraging people not to travel between regions. Uh, we will continue to work with the RCMP on its implementation and to uh, addressing member concerns. And that's from Brian Solvay, the president of the National Police Federation. Uh, I mean, that's even it's even unclear. Uh, Like you said, maybe we're going to see one giant roadblock uh, around the Hope area, but it still seems to be unclear if we're even going to see that. Well, exactly. And and, I mean, airports, you can still fly interprovincially, no problem, because that's federally regulated. So there's no change in that. You can still fly from Camels to Vancouver with zero questions and zero checks. Um, I, I drove down on Sunday to take the ferry. I drove home last night uh, to Kamloops uh, taking the ferry. Uh, the checkpoint at the ferry consists of the person uh, selling you your fare at the very end as they're handing you your slip saying, and your, your travel is essential, correct? And you say yes, and they say, have a good trip. Um, so, yes, we do need voluntary compliance on this. We want people not to find loopholes. We want people not to undermine the public health. Uh, the worry is that as more and more people start to try to find those loopholes over the next three weeks, as it gets closer and closer to the long weekend, that's when the pressure will really mount um, and compliance will start to be an issue. Um, that as more and more people start saying they're either going to, to visit their grandparents, that they're going to a medical appointment or they're going for work, Police, understandably, become more skeptical, and that's when we'll start seeing people, uh, unfortunately, and and hopefully not, but undoubtedly this will happen, get turned around and wind up missing medical appointments that sometimes with a specialist you've waited six months to get. And that is the concern here. The Premier did not think this out fully when he launched it 11 days ago. 
um, by flinging it out there. We are now basically two weeks into the five-week window, and uh, we're finally getting some semblance of understanding how it's even going to be enforced or not, and, and how little enforcement in terms of areas of the province it will even be enforced in. Uh, when you say you traveled and took the ferry, then would you, you're deeming your travel essential for work? So MLAs have been deemed uh, essential travel uh, or essential workers, and, and uh, yes, we've been deemed essential travel. Um, but the way these rules are written, anyone saying they're going for work, uh, that's essential. Um, you know, if you're trying to provide for your family and you need to drive from Vancouver uh, to go work on an industrial site during a you know a repair and maintenance shutdown or things of that nature, uh, that's still essential to your family that you have that income coming in to be able to provide for them. Um, so there, there's, you know, really, when you really get down to it uh, with this restriction, uh, you know, the, it sounds like the only thing you should not say if you're trying to travel is that you're going on holidays um, because everything else is deemed essential, um, which is understandable. And we need public buy-in. We need public to stay close to home. We need the public to do all of that. We absolutely agree with that. Um, this is really at its core about the Premier flinging something out two weeks ago, trying to sound tough, and now uh, we've spent two weeks watching uh, the police agencies and the Solicitor General twist themselves in knots, uh, trying to extract out some semblance of an enforcement plan that looks like the Premier actually knew what he was talking about uh, 10, 10, 11 days ago. All right, we'll have to leave it there for today. Uh, Peter Millibar, thanks so much, though, for making the time for us. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Anytime. Peter Millibar is the B.C. Liberal House leader. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, many people have been moved out of Strathcona Park and been offered accommodation. An official bulletin from the park board saying the encampment in Strathcona Park has come to a close with the vast majority of people who had been sleeping there now moved into safe and secure accommodation, saying over the past three weeks, B.C. Housing in the city of Vancouver have moved 184 people into accommodation with many Many people moving into private rooms with their own washroom. A small number of tents and temporary shelters remain in the park. And the park board saying they are continuing to work with the remaining people who were still in that park on other options. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Theodora Lamb, Strathcona uh, Executive Director with the Strathcona Business Improvement Association. Theodora, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, what's, uh, what are your thoughts on what's happened there uh, today and, and getting us to this point? Well, I think from the perspective of the businesses um, operating in and around Strathcona, uh, as well as the community, it's been a long year. Uh, the Strathcona BIA was part of a, a group of folks who penned a letter to the city way back in June um, and July, um, you know, signaling our concerns about what began as a small encampment and um, seeing, you know, a return to the conditions we saw in Oppenheimer, which, as you know, the businesses around uh, Oppenheimer Park and the community members um, know know very well, you know, what those conditions can look and feel like. So to hear that this has been thoughtfully, um, uh, you know, addressed and um, that folks uh, have not been simply moved over to another outdoor space, but have been moved inside into safe spaces is an amazing first step. I think um, a lot of these folks will remain in Strathcona. Many of them have moved into the Patricia Hotel, which has been announced um, and and will continue to be part of the community. And we just want to make sure those folks continue to have the supports, the additional supports beyond housing, you know, beyond a roof over their head um, so that uh, folks can stay safe. 
How has it been or what has it been like for you and for some of the businesses? Because I think oftentimes it's perceived as people pitted against each other when really there is a common goal and that's to improve the neighborhood, to make sure people have housing, have the supports that they need and to to bring that about. How have things been? Um, Well, I think one of the things we have to look at before we answer that question is, is the Strathcona camp the only and biggest story happening in Strathcona? And Jill, the truth is it's not. This is a story that has, to some degree, had a slow, um, intentional and thoughtful solution. People are being moved into housing. It has not been without advocacy and pain um, on all sides. But here we are. The the park will be cleared. Folks will be moved in and hopefully supported um, on their journey moving forward. That is not the biggest challenge facing businesses in Strathcona um, by any stretch. We have, you know, we're seeing graffiti uh, rates rise across the district and the city. We have encampments all across our district. Uh, There's street activity increasing. I have restaurants um, and, you know, uh, hospitality businesses who are facing all kinds of COVID restrictions. And on top of it, their staff are afraid to go home at night after 11 p.m. because of that street activity. So this feels like, you know, a powerful story, and I hope it continues to be. But we need to make sure that our attention stays um, on the conditions businesses and folks and residents are operating in throughout, you know, throughout our community. Are you concerned then that so much attention has been put on Strathcona Park and what's been happening with that encampment that a lot of those other issues that you just described haven't been getting the attention they need? Uh, that's a good question. I, You know, the attention was needed on the park. These folks uh, needed safe place, uh, places to go and um, we needed to do it thoughtfully. I, I don't think we could have escaped that. A lot of these folks moved from Oppenheimer, you know, uh, it needed a different approach. Um, my concern moving forward is once things are wrapped up, um, attention like, you know, property and vehicle vandalism and theft and public health and mental health and personal safety and street activity, that that we won't continue to have the same sort of heat and focus from um, civic leaders and from different institutions because it's not a straightforward story. It doesn't have, it's not all based in one place with one group of people. It's spread out across several districts in our city. And it is such um, a huge problem. Graffiti alone, you know, how do you begin to tackle that problem alone or with any one institution, like with the VPD or City Hall? And so I, I, I'm open and curious about how we're going to tackle these larger conversations together moving forward. Uh, I've noticed graffiti too, and certainly in that neighborhood and other parts of the city. I, I know there was a story done in, in the Vancouver Sun a few weeks ago, and the reporter who, who raised it then was kind of attacked by people who said he didn't understand that in a lot of cases that's how people communicate. But it kind of did ignore uh, this shift to graffiti on private property and graffiti that was really becoming uh, troublesome for businesses. How do you begin to to combat that when it's it's happening again in Strat? Kona, and it's happening so much more in so many neighborhoods. Well, when we get graffiti on private property, it goes on the business's bill. They're the ones who end up paying for the removal. When it's on public party, property, the, the city takes care of that. And so the more graffiti we see on local independent businesses, the, more, the greater the cost 
to the business because if they don't remove that graffiti, they are fined by the city. And to remove that graffiti, you either have to be in a BIA that has a program that will cover it for you, or you have to foot the cost yourself. And so there's this financial tension that hits local independent business right in the wallet. Um, I think one of the approaches we can take as a city and as a community is to really encourage public art, public art by and for the community um, that that speaks to the stories of the community. Uh, Graffiti, remember, it's like a canary in the coal mine. It's the first signal in a district or in a community that that, um, signals social unrest. And so if you are working with community businesses and citizens alike on public art and other projects like that, it's a step in the right direction. How much does it cost if a business, uh, if you arrive at your business one morning and you see the front of your business has been spray painted and is covered in graffiti, what's the bill like to a business owner to deal with that? You know, if you have a gorgeous public mural already done um, and you need it repainted and reprotected, it can cost upwards of $2,500. That's a lower level. If you have a tag, it can cost anywhere between two and 500 depending on the substrate, the material, uh, the compounds and the paints. Uh, there, there's a number of things you have to consider. So, you know, imagine this happening over and over and over again. Imagine it happening higher up where it's dangerous or harder to reach. Um, there's public art and then there's graffiti tags. And I think we have to be thoughtful about the difference between the two. I take the point about communication and, and how that, that's used as a way to, to signal and to share. And uh, we have to make sure our, our businesses are being supported through this. What would you like to see happen now uh, as far as uh, with the Strathcona Park is now going to go into a, a time of remediation? But like you said, uh, many other issues in that part of the city as well. What do you think the next step needs to be or should be? Well, we need Oppenheimer Park to open up again so the businesses and residents and visitors can begin to access that green space and use it as a park, which it was in, you know, originally intended to be. And we'll need the same for Strathcona Park. We lost so many public spaces through COVID um, and, 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 and public business spaces as well, restaurants, bars, places you could sit and convene. So we need both of these green spaces to open up you know, the sunshine and summer to come and hopefully we'll begin to repair some of those community bonds that that we may have lost through all this. All right. Uh, Theodore Lamb, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Theodora Lamb is the executive director of the Strathcona Business Improvement Association. And again, the Park Board uh, putting out a memo just a short time ago uh, saying that the camp, the encampment in Strathcona Park, has officially come to a close. Well, a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about how vaccine was getting into the arms in people in the downtown east side and a really coordinated effort to make sure people who were extremely vulnerable were not only getting access to the vaccine, but actually getting those shots. And my next guest was a big part of that. Guy Felicella is a public speaker as well as a peer clinical advisor on drug policy. And he joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being back on the show. Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, Last time we talked, you were talking about exactly that, getting out there, uh, kind of um, going to anybody you could find on the street, letting them know there was vaccine available and and where they could get it. How has that been going? Oh, it's been tremendously successful. I think, uh, you know, a a huge team approach at VCH and, you know, with just a a targeted response that... uh, 
you know, worked out really well. And I think, you know, a combination of, of, uh, of us being out there, you know, weekly and, and sometimes multiple times per week, uh, really got uh, the most out of it is that uh, even people that were skeptical of getting the vaccine at first started to show up and, and then now ask for it. So it was, uh, it was a really good, uh, it's a good feeling for sure. Uh, and there are reports then out now saying that this community or this neighborhood now has pretty much reached herd immunity. Is that accurate? Well, I'm not a, a medical uh, uh, doctor, but, uh, or, uh, you know, but uh, if that's what they're saying, then, you know, I just, I just do my job, which is go out there and try to get as many people vaccinated. And I know in a lot of those spots that there were clusters um there's none there now and so that's uh you know it shows the the effort and and the approach and i think you know meeting people where they're at on the street is was the approach that was needed especially for the community of the downtown east side uh, you have a very special perspective on this because you've talked very openly about this and your history in that area and uh, in that community. And when you do this now, when you're on uh, the, the streets of the downtown east side, reaching out to people, telling them about vaccine, what goes through your mind about where you were a few years ago in that exact same position? It's pretty surreal. I mean, uh, you know, full circle, you, know, you could say it's... Uh, truly uh, rewarding um, and provides, you know, I think, I think, you know, for, for me and, and my life, humbly, it provides people with hope as well. Uh, you know, you know, oftentimes when I'm in the downtown East side and people that I know that talk to me, I mean, um, they're, they're, they're proud. Um, you know, they tell me often like, Hey man, love ya. And, uh, it means a lot, especially coming from a community that I struggled in um, for decades and, and broke bread with many of the residents down there for, for years and years. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it feels good. It's a, it's a, it's a hopeful story. And I, I want them to know that, uh, um, that we, we can figure out a way to get out of this um, if we're just supported. And so I just try to show up in people's lives and just show them that support. Do you think that people trust you more in that neighborhood, given your history there? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, I, they love on me. I love them back. I mean, it's just, uh, it's always been that way. I mean, you don't survive in the downtown East side or how I lived for, for, for many years and, and, um, and be a part of that community and, and, and make the uh, amount of friends that I've made in that community. And, um, there's a respect, I think, you know, for, for, for both sides. I've always just respected people and expect the same thing back. And I think if you, if we as a society just treat people um, with that respect, it's going to be given back. And so, yeah, for me, it's just, I just, I love people, um, you know, and, and everything I have in my life is a direct result of, of me helping others. And it really turned the tide of my life. And it's just really the vision of my life today is just to try to help as many people as I can. So how were you able to get out of that life when you are, are back there and helping people get vaccinated and standing in some of the same places where you used to live? How were you able to turn that corner and to, uh, to leave that life behind you? It's, it, it's really, my life is contingent on the support that's around me. It's really that simple. If, if, if we have a support network or, or anyone, um, 
and it doesn't matter where you come from. Uh, if, if you have the supportive people that are there uh, trying to help you move forward and understanding what your path and your vision is of your own life, um, you can be successful in anything. And, and for me, that's what I just remember. That's what worked for me. And it was just many moments of people, you know, exercising that compassion and understanding, but compassion and understanding only goes so far. You need to actually support somebody and their journey of where they need to go to. And once you do that and make things happen and doors open for people, um, they can be successful as well. And I think we do that more in our society with people that are struggling, uh, you know, people will be successful. Uh, do you think that it's giving people then a sense of the fact that so that we've had such success with vaccinations in the downtown east side? How does that change things for people that are living um, perhaps with addiction, with dependency on drugs? How does that change their lives as far as, do you think, giving them hope or, or feeling uh, feeling uh, like they're being paid attention to? Yes, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, you know what? People that I, I talk to every day uh, when I'm down there, um, you know, oftentimes we don't talk about our struggles. We just try to, you know, power through them. And especially people in that community, when they did get the vaccine, they were just overwhelmed with relief. And that's the that's the that's the side effect that I say that comes with COVID: hope and relief. And, and who can complain with that? And oftentimes, uh, if you can take off one of, of of a person's many struggles, it gives them the ability to focus thing, on things that that uh, that need to be uh, attended to. And so like housing, poverty, or even, you know, making it into detox. And I was just down there yesterday and people were saying, can you help me get into on-site detox? Can you, can you call, can you call people? Can you call somebody for me? And I just, yeah, of course, let's, let's do it. Let's see what we can come up with. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people down there that, that want help. Uh, it's just uh, challenging for them to access it sometimes. So when someone says that to you, pulls you aside and says, hey, can you help me get into detox? Is there space? Can you actually do that? Yeah. yeah. You know what? Uh, I've, I've been doing this, uh, you know, all my life with me and uh, met a lot of people along the journey. And so there's there's uh, the actually I've just gotten two people into uh, treatment facilities uh, just this week. And uh a couple of people into uh, detox as well. And so, yeah, I, I have made some connections and some friends in the industry. And, and sometimes you, you have to call on them to, you know, some circumstances. Uh, I mean, I'm sure everybody's circumstances is desperate when they're trying to get in. But, yeah, sometimes uh, it works out and, and happy to be, you know, a person that navigates that for people. Uh, what do you see as far as well, we're talking about this on, on the same day uh, that uh, the Vancouver Park Board has declared the encampment at Strathcona Park ended? Uh, it will take some time to to get that park back to a park space. But uh, saying that 184 people who had been living there have now been offered housing, uh, does that do you think does that turn a corner as well as far as uh, somebody going from living in a tent in, in that kind of situation getting some kind of permanent housing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's great to have, you know, have a place that you feel, you know, secure and, and, and safe and um, a door that can close and you can lock it. Uh, it definitely goes a long way in, in providing some security in people's lives. I just think it has to be the right fit for the individual as well. So there's, you know, um, and, and people don't want to also live in a, you know, small SRO in a small room either. Uh, we need to look at a, a better strategy of these modular housings and 
and start, uh, you know, having widespread of them so that people can have access, you know, with their own rooms where they're not sharing a bathroom down the hall or a shower, um, those kinds of things. But I think it's a, it, it's definitely, it's definitely going to help some people uh, to get some secure housing. All right, Guy, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks, as always, for coming on the program. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Jill. Have a great day. You too. That is Guy Felicella, public speaker and peer clinical advisor on drug policy. Uh, a big part of getting vaccine to residents of the downtown east side in Vancouver. Health officials now saying it has been such a success in that community. Basically, uh, the downtown east side has achieved herd immunity. So that's uh, what the goal is uh, for uh, everywhere else, really. But it looks like that has been achieved, at least for that one community uh, in Vancouver. Well, as you know, there have been some high-profile cases when it comes to people breaking COVID-19 rules. Not bending the rules, not perhaps following the spirit of the law, but full-out breaking the rules. And one of the biggest ones involves Mohamed Movasagi, the man who was sentenced to one day in jail and given a $5,000 fine as well as 18 months probation for having those nightclub-like parties. The condo, which was known by many uh, known as grannies uh, by many people. So in that sentence, though, given to him, the court heard all about what happened in that penthouse condominium, that uh, there was a party for 78 people in uh, what was not overly large, perhaps uh, larger than most condos, but not a huge space. The judge who handed down that sentence described the event a crime, not a party, and was saying how the actions of people, not only the host, but the actions of others could have led to somebody else dying. And in her mind, in the judge's mind, that means that the host is in fact guilty of manslaughter. Now, keep in mind, he was never charged with manslaughter, but that has a lot of people wondering, could you be charged with manslaughter if you did something that led to somebody else getting COVID-19 and then dying? Let's bring in Isabel Grant, professor at the University of BC's Peter A. Allard School of Law. Isabel, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. A lot of attention has been paid to this case and now looking at the sentencing, but also the wording uh, that uh, we heard from the judge, provincial court judge Ellen Gordon, saying that if someone who had been at your party was infected and died, as far as I'm concerned, you're guilty of manslaughter. Uh, What is your response to that? Um, I think it's unusual for a judge to comment on liability for crimes that are not charged and are not before the court, and also a factual situation that there is no evidence of before the court. So that in itself is somewhat unusual. The one thing I will say, though, is I think it would be very difficult, in fact, for the Crown to prove manslaughter in a case like that. Where, Where manslaughter is charged, you have to show that the individual charged caused the death of the victim, and I think it would be extremely difficult to prove that um, the victim actually acquired COVID-19 at a particular location in a particular moment from someone, and also that it was the host who, assuming that it wasn't the host who transmitted the virus, you would have to show that it was the host that otherwise caused the death. I also just want to raise a concern about Using criminal law in this way, criminal law is a pretty blunt instrument. We've seen Canada has a less than ideal history of of using it 
to deal with non-disclosure of HIV, for example, that has that has really created problems and, and discrimination against particular marginalized groups of, of individuals. So I think it's more appropriate to use the public health system to deal with the transmission of a communicable infectious disease um, rather than to think that criminal law can really offer a solution there. Like you said, it's unusual to hear a judge or to see a judge issue a, a judgment like this because it even goes on. She called the event a crime, uh, not a party, and said that if someone who had been at your party was infected and passed it on to grandma, as far as I'm concerned, you're guilty of manslaughter. And you just touched on this or, or said how difficult it would be to pinpoint and be able to trace that back. Does it seem then that perhaps this is a case where a judge is looking at this and, and is just frustrated and showing that. And I think everyone feels really exasperated when one hears of the kinds of events that that this person was involved in. We all are limiting our lives um, in numerous ways and to hear of someone throwing a party and thinking that was appropriate. So I absolutely share the judge's frustration in that regard. But I think it's unfortunate when a judge goes on to say a particular crime could be proven in a particular way. In the example you just read about passing it on to grandma, then you have the double you have the double layer of causation that would have to be proven, right? That the person got it at the party and that grandma got it from that person. So proving that beyond a reasonable doubt, um, if you can just contemplate what that might look like for the crown, that would be extremely difficult, extremely resource intensive, and I'm not sure that it would do us very much good in terms of reducing transmission of COVID-19. And you you touched on this as well. Is it strange to hear a judge bring up something? Like you said, this person wasn't charged with manslaughter. There was no talk of manslaughter. Uh, even there, there's no that that's not even that's not something that's happened in this case. Is it bizarre to see a judge go there to bring that up? But in a case where that's not on the table? It's unusual. Judges normally are adjudicating disputes before them, so it's unusual. I don't know that I'd go so far as to say that it was bizarre. I think the trial judge was trying to convey the seriousness of the behavior of the individual in this case. And as I said, I I share her exasperation, but I, I think it's unfortunate when judges go beyond the realm of what what the facts are before them, because that's what judges do. They decide legal responsibility based on the evidence and you know there was no allegation that somebody died here there was there was no criminal charge that i'm aware of so i think um it's unfortunate it was unfortunate that that happened but i do think also that to some extent the media attention has been um has made the problem worse in some ways because i think it's taking away from the focus of of the important issues around what we can do to to control the spread of COVID-19 right now and the impact it's having on people's lives. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people would agree with that in that the messaging has been uh, we get vaccinated to, to uh, protect other people. We're staying home to protect others. We're, we're Even if we think we will be okay, it's making sure that we don't uh, pass the virus on to vulnerable, vulnerable people, which, which I'm thinking that's, that's the message the judge was trying to send as well. But perhaps it's now been lost in this particular message because people are looking at it going, wait a minute, do, do you mean that if I uh, go and break a public health order, is somebody going to come after me and charge me with something criminal uh, beyond breaking a public health order? 
And and I think it also stigmatizes COVID-19 in a way that we don't want. The idea that transmission is a crime, um, I think, is problematic, right? This is an illness we are dealing with, and people who are experiencing this illness have it overwhelmingly for no fault of themselves often because they are in positions where they have to work in dangerous workplaces or, or the like. So I just think associating criminal law with the transmission of illness isn't always the most effective way to deal with it, and that's why we have public health regulations and, and the public health officer has powers that, that she can exercise. So I, I think we need to be really cautious about thinking criminal law will help us control the spread of this virus. And different, too, from something when I first saw this, uh, I was thinking about cases that we've covered in the past dealing with, say, house parties or uh, obviously pre-pandemic uh, house parties or, say, somebody's at a pub and gets overserved and is then in a car crash or somebody has a party and lets the guests drive home uh, impaired and gets in a crash, that there is liability. But that does seem like something like that, even though you are not the person who was involved in an impaired crash, it does get traced back. You could face charges, but much different uh, than like you said, a public health emergency. And I think also most of those cases are people facing civil liability. There is a potential for criminal liability. The causation issue is more straightforward. You, you serve someone excessive amounts of alcohol, they go out and drive a car in a dangerous way and injure somebody. You can see the causal connection between what you've done and, and what that individual has done. Most of those cases are civil liability cases. Criminal liability for the um, pub owner would be unusual. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's not as common as civil liability where there is a financial responsibility rather than a criminal one. All right. Uh, Interesting uh, case and response to it. Uh, Isabel Grant, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Isabel Grant, a professor at the UBC Peter A. Allard School of Law. Our next guest is here to talk about why the Pacific National Exhibition is facing a very uncertain future and is looking for some provincial help to make sure that the PNE stays and isn't perhaps lost forever. Joining me now is Shelley Frost, the president and CEO of the PNE. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Uh, it really puts it into perspective when I was uh, reading about this earlier, saying here's an organization that has survived world wars, just mm-hmm. uh, survived the Great Depression, and it's kind of teetering on the brink right now. Yeah, you know, it, we can. I, I, I do want to be clear that we completely understand that there's so many organizations that are in, uh, you know, a terrible position. Look at restaurants. Look at, you know, so many small businesses. Um, but. What I'm, you know, what I'm really grateful for is that the government is is looking to allocate 100 million dollars to help the tourism industry and the anchor attractions. We're one of those very signature anchor attractions, and we just need to be able to let them know that without their support, without allocating some of that fund to the PE, we are in really big trouble. Um, you know, we're fighters, and we've been resilient, and we've been innovative, but at some point, you know, I, I've said this a few times, at some point, the, de- the debt becomes insurmountable. And as a nonprofit, you know, in, you know, we make about a, a million dollars a year, and $15 million in debt, it would take us a decade and a half just to get out of debt. So that's what the PNE is right now, $15 million in debt? We're, yeah, we're $8 million in debt right now, 
and we could be up to 15 million uh, in debt by the end of this upcoming year. And that, of course, will depend very much on what happens with the recovery in late summer. Um, but we are starting to already see, you know, things that were scheduled to happen late summer being being set forth into the fall, and some of the fall programming being pushed later into the fall. So. Um, you know, it's it, our key season. Obviously, is the summertime, and we'll miss two full years of uh, of, of key revenue generating time and key jobs and key economic impact. So, what exactly are you asking then from the provincial government? Yeah, we you know we realize that there's a high demand all around. And $8 million is not going to get us out of debt, but $8 million is going to help us get to a point where we can manage the remainder of the debt and continue to look for other ways to, um, to help support ourselves. But we are asking them to consider $8 million. Um, you know, there are a number of organizations that have received so much more than that already. Um, there are a number of industries that are being supported by different programs that we are not being supported by. Uh, I really, again, want to emphasize we're not asking for something that, that you know, other people don't have access to. We're asking to share appropriately in a fund that's already been designated to support our industry and then recognize that we have been left out of so many other programs that our peers have been able to access that I think that ask is reasonable. Uh, so at this point as well, coming uh, to this point, I know uh, the PNA, so you operate without government funding. You haven't been given any of the uh, the assistance grants or any of the emergency funding. Is it because the PNA doesn't qualify or have you chosen to not access that at this point? Oh, no, it's definitely because we're not eligible. Um, we have been working, you know, all year to have discussions with uh, all levels of government and all ministries across those governments uh, to talk about our eligibility, but it's, we have a really unique um, uh, corporate structure, and we are a nonprofit, and that corporate structure excludes us from a lot of programs. And I was mentioning today that some of the programs, even the summer jobs program, we were discluded because we had too many full-time employees. Um, you know, another grant program, we were excluded because our payroll was too high from the year prior. Um, you know, when I look around to our peers in the tourism industry, there are funds available through a lot of federal programs to help on the educational front, um, the development front, the exhibit front. Um, but we have never participated in, never required that funding before. So we're not, we're not familiar with those. And a lot of those programs are only open to people who have received funding in the past. So it's either our unique structure that discludes us or... It's the fact that we've never needed funding before, and so now we're not eligible to to access it because it's only available to those that have received it before. How many jobs are we talking about as far as if this funding isn't granted? How many jobs could potentially be lost? Yeah, that's a great question, Jill. We have 4,300 employees, jobs at the PE, and we're responsible just in the fair alone for 9,500 indirect jobs with our suppliers and the partners and stuff that we work with. A lot of those are... Um, youth jobs. We are the largest employer of youth in BC and their first jobs, both for young people and for immigrants coming to Canada to help get, you know, just get started and get a new skill set and get into the world of working here in Canada. We really pride ourselves on the way that we handle first jobs with training and support and moving people around to be able to get different sets of skills. Um, we have very important low barrier to entry jobs for people who have difficulty entering the job market in other areas, all the way up to really highly skilled trades. 
So it's a complete diversity of jobs. And, you know, between uh, all the events that we do, we are responsible for a $200 million economic impact in the region. And that's, you know, all the surrounding businesses and suppliers um, that benefit from the work that we do. And you mentioned, too, with things already in some other areas, things being pushed into the fall. Uh, My guess is because, uh, from what you just mentioned, a lot of youth coming to work there and the the workforce for the P&E, would it even be feasible to look at potentially not not cancelling it this year, but postponing until the fall? Yeah, again, good question. We did look at the feasibility of having the fair at a different time frame. And, you know, I mean, we'll look at everything that's on the table. But because such a large proportion of our um, uh, employees are students, it does make it really difficult to be able to pull off an event the size and the magnitude of the fair at the P&E later than September once so many of our students have gone back to school. And, you know, our employees there, they need those, that summer activity and those summer jobs through Playland and the fair to be able to help them get through school. So it does provide unique challenges for sure. How did it look last year? If I'm remembering, I, I remember drive through options and there was yeah. an attempt made to have some form of the p How did that work out? Yeah, you know, there are so many benefits that came along with that. And I think probably most importantly was just the morale of our team and, you know, the passion that went into putting those things on to be able to stay connected to our guests and to bring people out to experience something, anything at all during a really, really trying time. And I think, you know, that's what we really love about this team. We are resilient. We are innovative. We will always try and and bring to the table something unique and different. But we also recognize that, you know, over the year, the course of a year of COVID, lots of things have changed. Um, you know, I think the, the idea of drive throughs has kind of run its course with a lot of what we've done. And, um, you know, with just with shifting health guidelines as we try and get through this most recent uh, crisis with high cases, it just, um, it, there's real limits to what we are able to do. Uh, what kind of a timeline are you looking at then as far as when do you need to know whether or not the PE is uh, is going to get this $8 million in emergency funding? Yeah, the $100 million, um, $100 million fund for tourism and the anchor attraction was announced as part of the BC budget uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they indicated that they were going to take a few weeks to decide how that was going to be allocated. And so we are certainly hopeful that in the next few weeks, um, hopefully even in the next coming week, we will have a clear indication of what role we might be able to play in accessing some of the funding set aside to support the organizations exactly like us. So at this point, you haven't heard then, uh, no, you don't qualify or yes, you qualify. You're kind of waiting for that. Yeah, we, this is the one that we absolutely should qualify for. <laughs> um, there, there shouldn't be any exclusions there. Now I think it's a matter of how they decide to, to um, spread that out. And I do hope that they look very seriously at the fact that the P&E has not been able to access so many other programs that um, they take that into consideration as they're allocating those funds. All right. So we'll be waiting to see what happens next. I know a lot of people uh, love it and look forward to it every year. Uh, Shelley, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jill. Shelley Frost is the president and CEO of the PNE, uh, the exhibition looking for $8 million in financial aid emergency funding, saying without that, the PNE, as people know it, could be lost forever. All right. Yesterday on the program, we were talking about black bears and uh, we were talking to the North Shore Bear Society with concerns about uh, already this far into spring, already a live bear trap that had been 
set up on Braemar Road and a problem bear in that area. Well, today we're talking about two other bears, and these are not problem bears at all. In fact, they are the attractions on Grouse Mountain, and you've likely heard of Grinder and Kula before. Well, looks like they have woken up once again. So joining me to talk more about this is Julia Grant, Communications Manager with Grouse Mountain. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so how are Grinder and Kula doing? Uh, they are doing very well. As you mentioned, they emerged from hibernation yesterday. So uh, got out and got a chance to kind of move around. They they were pretty playful, out enjoying. They, they like sliding around in the snow and doing some exploring in their habitat. And is that a pretty normal time for them to wake up? Well, this is actually uh, the longest hibernation that they've had since they've been here at Grouse Mountain. Uh, They went into hibernation, I believe, on November 10th. So coming out, it was 170 days that they were in their hibernation period this year. I'm jealous about that kind of (laughs) that kind of sleep. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So so they're up and they're they're playful and such. Do they look different or you must notice or people that are used to seeing them must notice a big difference from when you last saw them to seeing them again? Mm-hmm. Well, definitely in the fall, they are bulking up and putting on all their uh, their weight to uh, last them through their winter dormancy period. So when they come out, they're they're looking a little smaller, although not that small. Um, but they've definitely um, uh, lost some of that uh, fall weight and are getting their metabolisms going again and starting to uh, get out and graze and, and do some eating again. Uh, I remember when they first arrived, and I was trying to do the math in my brain. And it is uh, it's a pivotal year. It's a cel- celebratory year. Absolutely. We are celebrating their 20th anniversary here at the mountain. So grizzly bears, they, uh, they, they're usually born in hibernation. So they would have been born uh, 20 years ago in the hibernation period. So uh, it's, it's exciting for us to celebrate this anniversary and uh, have them out and exploring their habitat again. And can you give us a bit of a refresher for people that maybe uh, weren't here when that happened or not familiar with the story of Grinder and Kula? Mm-hmm. How did they come to live there? So both Grinder and Cooler were actually orphaned uh, in separate incidents in BC. Grinder is from around Invermere, BC, and was found kind of dehydrated, thin and weak without a mother uh, and wouldn't have survived in the wild. And then Kula was actually found orphaned on a highway near Bella Kula. Uh, and uh, there wasn't really any rehabilitation programs in place for grizzly bears at that time. So uh, we created the Gross Mountain Refuge for Endangered Wildlife, and they have been living in their habitat on the mountain ever since. Uh, Because I would imagine you get that question quite a bit uh, about uh, the fact that they were orphaned and questioning, well, why couldn't they have been rehabilitated and left out in the wild? Mm-hmm. Yes, there weren't any real programs in place at that time. There wasn't really any options. And uh, then after being around humans and things like that, so uh, we created this this refuge for them uh, rather than uh, any sort of alternatives. And um, so it's a it's, it was a great way for Grinder and Kula to you know carry on and actually a great learning opportunity for people. They're a big part of our education program, so people can learn about grizzly bears and their behaviors and have a greater appreciation for them in the wild. Uh, I know you have uh, the director of the Refuge, a veterinarian, uh, Dr. Ken McQuiston, uh, who's talked about this. Do we know what the the life expectancy of is uh, for grizzly bears? I would imagine we would know in the wild. Do we know if it's different or what it might be for Grinder and Kula? 
Well, Grinder and Kula are very well looked after. Uh, they, as, as you mentioned, they have their own personal veterinarian. <laughs> uh, so they are very well looked after. So um, whereas probably around now would be the life expectancy in the wild, uh, we anticipate that they will be with us for, for a while longer for sure. And what's the response like when people come there? And I know, like everything else, the pandemic has changed things. But what's the response like when people come and see these bears? I, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to uh, for people to see them up close and be able to experience that and not something that you'd want to be that close in the wild. Uh, so it's uh, they just uh, they love to see them. And I know they have a big following around the world through our webcams on our on our website. Uh, a lot of people have met them on a vacation and then continue to sort of check in on them and, and stay in touch through our, our virtual means. Uh, speaking of that, I know, uh, so there was a camera, wasn't there, placed during uh, the hibernation? Yes, so we have an infrared camera that is in their den, so you can watch them while they hibernate. There's a, a neat time-lapse feature to that as well, so you can sort of see the replay of the day before and watching them moving around. And now that they are out about in their habitat, we've got... Uh, webcams in a few different locations so you can still check in on them and we'll continue to post updates through our ranger blog on our website and also our social media channels. <laughs> Do you find yourself watching or did you find yourself watching the, the hibernation cam very often? Oh absolutely it's always good to check in and see them snuggled in their den and uh, yeah no it's definitely something that those of us around the mountain like to do. <laughs> it, it reminds me a little bit of our, the obsession we get around the holidays of the fireplace cam and that mm-hmm. uh, all stare at it and when you see the arm or see any movement at all you get so excited. Yeah absolutely and see sort of some some movement of the grizzly bears but uh, usually they're just kind of cuddled together in their den sleeping away. <laughs> Very nice. Um, how has the pandemic changed as far as uh, I would imagine it's changed uh, visitors and changed a few things uh, and this would be one of those things as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've had to uh, obviously adapt as, as everybody else has and have uh, put in place a lot of new safety protocols, including our reservation system for the Skyride for people wishing to visit the mountain, uh, masks are mandatory at the mountain and a lot of other uh, kind of safety protocols in place. Uh, but it's nice for people. We're, we're inviting those in our local community right now. We know there are travel restrictions in place and people should stay in their local health authority. But for those who are local, they're welcome to come up and, you know, visit the bears at the mountain. It's nice to to welcome them but for everyone else we'll we'll still continue to connect virtually for now all right and uh, what about diet now that they've woken up and they're back to eating again how much do they eat uh, well, right now they're not eating all that much because uh, they sort of have to get their, their systems going. Their stomachs actually shrink a bit. Uh, so they're starting more sort of greens and sort of smaller things right now. Uh, and then they'll start uh, eating more vegetables and adding some protein and things as they get further into the summer season. All right. So, well, great news that, that they have woken up and are uh, back and uh, better than ever. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Julia, for joining us uh, and bringing us this update. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Glad to do it. That is Julia Grant, Communications Manager with Grouse Mountain. And again, you can check out, well, if you were checking out the hibernation cam, you likely already knew uh, that Grinder and Kula have woken up once again. They woke up uh, yesterday and, uh, as Julia mentioned, with the travel restrictions, uh, people are still welcomed to go see them. But, uh, of course, not if you are traveling from outside the health authority.